This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Health and Living. I'm T. Shaoik. On the show today, the NCD Chronicles, where we go beyond the diagnosis of a non-communicable disease. Hi, my name is Selina and I own a public relations and marketing company. I also um, dabble in a little bit of fashion. My brand is called Romida KL and I'm also very involved uh, with um, corporate advisory work. There's so many things that I do, so let's just say that um, I'm living my life doing everything that I wanted to do. Selena York Jr. has what you'd call joie de vivre. That kind of exuberant enjoyment of life isn't what you'd associate with cancer. But in the lottery of life, the chances of anyone experiencing sickness, vulnerability and pain are random. And cervical cancer was the hand that Selena was dealt at the age of 53. I got diagnosed in the um, two years ago, just before we were coming out of uh, COVID. Uh, actually, what happened was I found myself uh, spotting, and I'm no longer in that phase of uh, spotting. Uh, I didn't think much about it, but um, a friend of mine over lunch just before Christmas said I had a rather pale experience in my eyes, you know, looked as though I wasn't well. She said, go and have it checked. And I said, no, I'm going to fly to London. And who's going to, who's going to check me? I mean, that's just my excuse. But actually, I was afraid. I was afraid. So I said, no, I'm going to fly. I, I was literally flying off to London uh, the next night. But something made me still get it checked. Uh, the doctor had me checked. And he, he, he scanned and he said, oh, the, everything, everything looks fine, he said. I said, oh, yay. And then um, he said, but anyway, just to be sure, let me put a probe in. He put a probe in and when he withdrew the probe, it was covered in fresh blood. And then he says, oh, this is not good. Uh, I need to do a biopsy. Then he did what he had to do to take the sample out. And he said, oh, you know, I think it's quite visible already. So the point I'm trying to say is sometimes just scans are not going to to tell you what really is happening. You really need to examine, you know, um, internally as well. So because he can see already, he, he suspects it's an early stage of cervical cancer. Nobody expects a cancer diagnosis, of course. Much less cervical cancer, which wasn't really something that Selena had thought about very much, apart from her regular pap smears. I had been very diligent with my pap smears, but I didn't go for two years because it was COVID. The last thing you want to do is go to the hospital to get yourself checked. It's not easy. You've got... To go to the hospital, you need to do that PCR test. So I just didn't do two years. And that was when, you know, when this thing happened. So when I got diagnosed, everybody realised, hey, we've not had ourselves 
uh, examine for two years too. So there was quite a mad dash for my friends to have themselves um, checked after that. Because people forgot. It wasn't um, in their to-do list. So there she was on Christmas Eve, facing the big C. I didn't know what to to say. And I mean, Christmas is coming. Who's going to do anything? I'm flying off. Um, I didn't feel anything yet. You know, the delayed reaction? Yeah. Only when I was driving, then I just cried and cried and cried because... This is, you know, what what sort of Christmas and year end am I going to to experience? Uh, my father died of cancer as well, um, just a few years before my my own diagnosis. So I'm saying that I'm so much my father's daughter, is it? Then um, he says that he's going to let me know of the results. He's sure it is. It's only what stage. So on uh, the results came out on New Year's Eve. They emailed me and they and they said that I was at stage two B. So you know, so it's not that small as as he thought it was, and at that at this stage, surgery is not possible. But he's not in the position to advise me further. I need to see a a gynae oncologist. When I went to see her, she asked me questions, examined me inside, and she says, oh, wow, you know, this is quite sizable. And um, prescribed the uh, radiation, the chemotherapy, and the worst of all was the brachy. That's the worst of all. I think that was the most traumatic uh, treatment. I'm, I'm not trying to scare anyone, but it's not for the faint-hearted. Um, I started on my treatment almost immediately. It might sound like Selena had an express ticket from diagnosis to treatment. But in fact, her initial symptoms were very vague and unfortunately, she was led down the wrong path of being treated for a urinary tract infection for three months before she was properly diagnosed. Okay, so at first, uh, I realised that when I was peeing, there was... Blood. Mm, I thought mm, could be a urinary tract infection or something like that. Mm. You know, because it's, it, you don't think about anything else. Yeah. Um, so that was more of um, visible blood, like tinge uh, urine. When I was potting, when I first had the stains in the urine, I went to see a gynae, but she didn't do a proper examination. Again, she just relied on the ultrasound. And she says, oh, I think you have an overactive bladder. So she referred me to see a urologist. I went through a lot of pain with that urologist who then examined all the wrong parts of me. Just think catheters. Yeah, examine all the wrong parts. All the wrong parts. You know, I was put through a lot of unnecessary tests, which was massively uncomfortable. And he prescribed me a month of antibiotics plus something to strengthen my bladder. So after a month, uh, I felt that, yeah, I still see all these things. 
And then he says, oh, it's okay. I'll give you another month of medication. Uh, he says, worst come to us when you come back, then we will do further tests. But I said, you know, it, it's not too long to wait for the next examination. He says, no, it's fine. So that's when my girlfriend says, I think that's something wrong. You don't go on a medication for two months with no improvement. The nature of cervical cancer makes it a challenging disease to diagnose, especially if doctors aren't asking the right questions or looking in the right place. The key here is to take very thorough history and to examine. That's Professor Dr Wu Yinling, a gynaecological oncologist from University Malaya Medical Centre. Professor Wu is also the founding trustee and medical technical advisor of Rose Foundation, a charitable foundation that conducts a program for removing obstacles to cervical screening. So there are various stages of cervical cancer and because it's a hidden organ, so women won't realise that they have cancer until the advanced stages, until, unless, of course, they go for screening. Now, in the early stages when the cancer is small, most of the time it's asymptomatic, no symptoms at all. So you wouldn't know that there's an issue unless you go for screening. Now, in the advanced stages, depending on how big the tumour is, the growth is, it depends what organ it impinges on. So most of the time, if it's a growth on the external cervix, it will present itself as bleeding after sex or any forms of abnormal bleeding. If it, and that catches the attention of the individual or a gynecologist. They'll know who to go to. Now, occasionally, the growth is bigger and it doesn't manifest itself in bleeding, abnormal bleeding. It presses the bladder or it presses the bowel or it presses some nerves. So they may present to a doctor with buttock pain or hip pain, very non-specific aches and pain. And that's when you sort of do MRI or you go through a, a series of investigations. It might be with an orthopedic doctor first. If it's a bowel, it might be a gastroenterologist. Or if it's a bladder, it may be a urologist who will not be familiar with gynecological complaints. So really, in the broader picture, uh, for a woman, there's a spectrum of uh, symptoms. And so one needs to be aware of those uh, variety of symptoms that may affect um, a woman. Does that then mean that misdiagnosis or a missed diagnosis is common when it comes to cervical cancer? I wouldn't say it's common, but it is definitely a possibility, especially in the ones that uh, I highlighted earlier on. But with uh, abnormal bleeding, um, we I do see it. And I think as a specialty, we do see it. Sometimes we have become too dependent on um, technical investigations. Doctors love putting an ultrasound scan on or take doing some scans instead of going down to the basics like examining the patient. And in a busy clinic, um, they may say, oh, let's just do the test and not make you bear your clothes off and go through this uncomfortable examination, thinking that sometimes it may be better for the patient in terms of um, you know, not making them have an embarrassing examination. In those situations, you may miss important signs and symptoms. 
So cervical cancer in general tends to be localized, meaning that the uh, growth is in the cervix, first initially with no symptoms. Then as the tumor gets larger and larger, then it starts pressing on the nearby organs, which is the pelvic floor muscles, the bladder, the bowel. Now, once it starts to spread, the general area it tends to affect for cervical cancer are the lymph nodes. So occasionally, a woman may, be, may present with a lump around the region of her neck, what we call the supraclavicular area, and that's because there's an enlarged lymph node. And that may be the first presentation to a healthcare professional in those situations. Then they would have a generalized... Um, weight loss, and they will be tired because as the growth of uh, the tumor becomes bigger, they can become anemic, and so they will complain of tiredness. So in general, most cancers that we deal with, whether it's breast, ovary, or cervix, the general stages are from stage 1 to stage 4, and that gives you a an idea of the size, the locality, and whether it has spread. So when you talk about stage 1 cervix cancer, it can be as early as what a microscope or a biopsy can detect but not be seen by the eye, naked eye. Then you move up progressively to stage 4 where it spreads to other nearby organs. It's affected the bladder or it's affected the rectum or if the lymph nodes are affected or it's affected the uh, ureters. So the staging implies how extensive uh, the disease is and it gives you a rough indication of prognosis. What, what I mean by that is, for example, in cervix cancer, if someone is diagnosed with early stage 1 disease, the survival rate is more than 90%. Taken as a whole, the survival rate for cervical cancer is about 60%, which is two-thirds, not bad at all for a cancer. But it, if it has spread to lymph nodes, what we call uh, metastatic or advanced sort of uh, spread, then the survival comes down to about 15%, one in six. Um, so that's for cervical cancer. And in general, staging is to help prognosticate, um, to plan treatment, to advise uh, on what is the likelihood someone will be better from the disease. After the break, Selena shares what treatment was planned for her and gets candid about what she really went through. The good, the bad and the ugly. This is NCD Chronicles, our series that goes behind the diagnosis of non-communicable diseases. Stay tuned to Health and Living BFM 89.9. It can be eliminated and it's treatable. So it's not a death sentence because that was what I felt. Oh, you know, crying and all. It's not a death sentence. Because you heard cancer. Cancer, oh, you know. So having all this, focusing on all the positives of what's happening right now, I think the world is definitely a much better place. When people say, you know, the good old days or it's better, you know, in those days, really, I mean, if you look at the positives, where can you find such a strong statement like this cancer can be eliminated? This cancer is so treatable, you know? Hello and welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik, on another episode of NCD Chronicles. 
In conjunction with Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, we're highlighting one woman's journey from diagnosis to remission. Selena Yop Jr. went through a punishing regime of therapies, but she counts herself fortunate to have had access to these treatments. Professor Dr. Wu Yinling, a gynecological oncologist, describes cervical cancer as a potentially curable disease. Cervical cancer is one of the cancers I personally am most excited about because this is one cancer we now say that we can eliminate. There's no other cancer we can eliminate. This is because if you detect the cancer very early, stage 1A, you're talking about either simple removal of the tumour or a simple hysterectomy where you can cure the cancer. Even in advanced stages, it's not a death sentence. In advanced stages, you're talking about one in six, you know, where you can cure them. The term we use for doctors uh, when we use cure, it's usually what we call the five-year survival rate. So oncologists or uh, doctors, when we say the term cure, we must um, we must know that when we look at statistics, we measure, when I say that 90%, what does it mean? It means the cancer doesn't return within or after five years. Can it occur after that? Yes, of course you can, but it's unlikely. So when we talk to patients, when we talk about what's the likelihood of cure or me getting better, we, we use five-year survival rates in general. So if you talk about very early cancers, that's why we are always asking women to screen, 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 which means having a test done when they, they don't have symptoms. That's because if you pick that up early, not only is the treatment very effective, it is also very cheap. You hardly need to stay in the hospital. So the idea of picking up early disease is something we should aim for because there's treatment we can offer. Whereas for the more advanced stages, you're talking about complex uh, radiotherapy. It requires treatment over a period of a month long with significant side effects. And somewhere in the middle, you have uh, surgery, um, radical hysterectomy. The selection of a wrong treatment sometimes may mean that women will require both surgery and radiotherapy. So it's, it's treatment that, re, that has lots of side effects if you use both modalities. So chemotherapy in this case is used as a radiosensitizer. So for the treatment of cervix cancer, the chemotherapy is not like what we call the full-on actual chemotherapy. The purpose of giving that chemotherapy is so that it makes the um, radiation treatment more effective. Because when you give the chemotherapy, you're basically using it as a radiosensitizer. So radiotherapy can be what we call external beam radiotherapy, whereby the rays are shone from the outside. So that's like going into a CT machine. And through planning, they will know how to direct the rays to a particular area. Brachytherapy is when the um, applicator or the radiation is directly applied to the cervix. So for this, you need to have quite uncomfortable instruments and procedures whereby you know, the, the implement is inserted through the vagina so that the radiotherapy can be applied to the cervix directly. That's very uncomfortable and it's done under um, regional anesthesia. 
Selena's stage of cancer meant that she had, in her words, the book thrown at her. Chemotherapy, radiotherapy and brachytherapy. People always talk about, okay, radiation. Initially, the first 14 times, I felt it was very normal. Then when it starts to burn, you suffer abject pain, okay? Um... Chemo is another thing altogether. Chemo would be, you know, other things. Yeah. Maybe the nausea, fatigue and all that. Uh, nausea, um, diarrhea, constipation. It's like that, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like first chemo and then it's constipated and then second chemo is diarrhea. I mean, and then oh, it's just very different things. Mm-hmm. But the brachy, uh, the brachy... It's a class of its own because you need to do a spinal for that, epidural. Uh, and then they need to insert, imagine a lightsaber, you know, um, Star Wars. It looks exactly like a lightsaber, maybe a shorter version of a lightsaber. And that contraption, it's not a contraption, but that equipment is placed right through your cervix, you know, like all the way. So when you are under the epidural, you're awake, right? Yeah. But you can literally... It's not pain, but it's a sensation. We must not confuse pain with um, pressure. So that thing is driven all the way in and it's left there to, to emit radiation internally yeah. so that it delivers the radiation directly to those those cells, those nasties inside. And then they leave it there for a while and then they pull it out. But the whole process is very much as though you are giving birth. The whole thing, you know. For me, what I felt was the whole preparation was like, you know, like that. And um, one of the sessions, I think the epidural didn't quite work. But it had to go on. So it was an emergency, uh, a GA. So they um, put you to sleep and then they do it. That, that involves some bleeding as well. Selena responded well to the first session of brachytherapy and her tumour showed signs of shrinking. So she was able to reduce the number of sessions from four to three. Her candidness about the pain and discomfort of treatment can be contrary to the official narrative about cancer treatment. Everything has side effects, say the healthcare professionals, in the belief that acknowledging the side effects will discourage patients from completing treatment. But it is also important not to dismiss the totality of patients' experiences. I think doctors are guilty of not spending enough time to explain the potential side effects. If we know what to expect, we will be less fearful and we will be more prepared. And we take it for granted that patients know when you say, oh, your skin will be sore. But, you know, there's various degree of soreness. So in, in some patients, you might just have some redness of the skin to actually acute burns on the skin. So in for cervical cancer treatment, the area is around the vulva. For head and neck cancer patients, it's really around the, the cheek area, the inner parts of the mouth that you, you can't mix saliva. So 
I, I think we need to acknowledge that those uh, side effects do happen. We need to prepare patients. We need to tell them what do they anticipate and that those are temporary. While you may not regain the full function, there may not be full skin health again, you know, it will be better. Um, there are various ways or various things you can help um, spend more time with the patient to explain so that they can face the treatment a bit better. So, for example, you might think, oh, you know, I'm using radiotherapy, so I shouldn't, let's moisturize so it wouldn't be dry. But if you have any oil-based moisturizer, that would increase the burn. So if patients are not informed about that and, and they use sort of the wrong moisturizer, it will make the radiotherapy effects much worse. You're burning the skin. Then the after effects of radiotherapy can last um, lifelong. And although it's not common, uh, they may have bleeding um, after sex, bleeding when they urinate or when uh, they move their bowels. And that can happen many years after radiotherapy. So it does affect the nearby organs. As long as we explain that to the patient, we tell them where to seek help if that happens, then I think that's that's going to facilitate the journey much, much better and not so fearful. You know, if you've had radiotherapy 10 years ago and you suddenly, you know, you move your bowels, you see fresh blood. That's a very scary experience. Oh, is this a new cancer? But if someone has mentioned that, hey, that's part of a radiotherapy effect, then you, oh, if you, I'll, I'll go see someone and get it checked. Are there any effects of the treatments on fertility? Not all radiotherapy are the same, but because for cervix cancer, the um, ovaries are within the field of uh, radio radiation therapy. So if you have radiotherapy for cervix cancer, that means that the fertility uh, will be affected in the sense that the ovaries will no longer function. Well, in the past, they've talked about why don't you hitch up, you know, you do an operation, you, you bring the ovaries up and you remove them from the field of radiotherapy. That has been tried, but most often it also doesn't work because you, also, you disrupt the blood supply to the ovaries. And so that, that's, not, um, that's not very helpful. So yes, in general, when we say uh, have radiotherapy for the treatment in the young, we would say that there won't be any uh, ovarian function after that. You would need some form of hormone replacement therapy. So hormone th replacement therapy is not contraindicated um, after cervical cancer treatment. In fact, we should talk more about it because there's a lot of dryness associated with radiotherapy and made um, menopausal immediately. So sexual function and it will be affected. It must be so difficult for women with cancer to talk about their sexual and reproductive health needs. It's so difficult and therefore we must do better. Cancer is common and, and we, are, we are getting them through to being long-term survivors. We must, must do better in survivorship. We must do better. We're not doing well enough and... In other high-income countries, you have specialist counsellors, specialist nurses, where they spend time doing that. And at the moment, we are just dealing with the acute. We must spend more time in improving survivorship, talking about 
sex lives, talking about a body image, especially if you're wearing a stoma, for example, there's so many things you need to deal with. Women who wear stoma can go for a swim, but we, you know they don't dare to. But we, we deny many women of quality of life when we don't talk about issues. So we must do better. When Selena was undergoing daily radiotherapy for three months, she hit another unexpected bump. I had bad burns, terrible burns on that pelvic area. Could have been due to an excessive amount of supplements that people were giving me to help. Apparently, you know, when you're, when you're not well, everyone says, take this, take that, drink this water, take this pill, take this take these plants, take this, take that. So I was taking everything, more than 10 types of herbs and things out of the, you know, because people just being very helpful and I just took everything. And this thing kind of like my body reacted and it, the burn was insane. Professor Wu has very strong words of advice for patients who have been told about the curative or healing properties of antioxidants such as curcumin or turmeric as we commonly know it. At massive supernatural doses, these compounds could induce the kind of harm that Selena went through. This is something we face very, very often. First of all, when uh, women are diagnosed with cancer, they are told not to have a thousand million things, and then they are introduced a thousand different supplements um, in, into their lives. They come out of the woodwork. Now, we talk about antioxidants, first of all, specifically for cancer, because every one of us know, you know, we have been brought up with antioxidants are good for us. But in general, yes, they are, they are good for us, not until you have treatment for cancer, either chemotherapy or radiotherapy in extraordinary doses. There have been so many studies done already where antioxidants in supernatural doses have been shown not to be helpful. It's been shown to be detrimental. So up until today, if you do a very thorough sort of literature search to ask the simple question, are antioxidants good for me? Um, as I'm going through treatment for cancer, and the answer is equivocal. There's been studies to show it's helpful. There have been studies to show that it's harmful, and it in fact helps the cancer grow quicker. So what oncologists will advise during treatment, during actual chemotherapy and radiotherapy is not to go on any of these uh, supplements where there may be active ingredients that we don't know about. So if you take very strong antioxidants, it may directly impact um, the radioactivity itself. There have also been studies looking at curcumin, for example. Curcumin, isn't it? We've heard that it's good for cancer, it's good for arthritis. Curcumin has been shown to be a very good radio sensitizer means it makes a radiation treatment more effective. What does that mean? If you take very high doses of curcumin, you may burn. So I, I think the general advice to patients is that when they're going through treatment is to eat as healthily as possible, keep the amount of protein and carbohydrates high, enough to keep them healthy. 
not to go on too many supplements that they don't know about, not to go on high doses of antioxidants that may impact their treatment. I definitely don't advise. So when I read people's um, cancer, you know, when they when they tell people, oh, I'm going through this, uh, uh, my friends are giving me this, my advice is um, people mean well, but unless it's absolutely necessary, because everyone is just wanting to make you feel better. I respect that. I appreciate that. Mm. But unfortunately for me, my body reacted very badly. So my advice is not to um, take all these things. Nonetheless, Selena's story is not meant to frighten other women who have been diagnosed with cancer. In fact, her story is one of perseverance, even through her lowest moments. Did you feel defeated at times? Never. Never. I, I tell you, when you're a single mom like me, and you know that you're the only thing your three sons have, there is no room for failure. Absolutely none. You cannot think about pain, discomfort, and all those things. And don't forget that we were still in COVID, right, at that time. So I could not have any visitors. My children couldn't come and see me. Nobody could come. And I tell you, lessons in this is that we are. I'm so blessed that I got to stay in a four-bedded room with three other women who may not come from so privileged a background as most. Mm. I could hear conversations that they were having with their doctors that I can't take this medicine because my, my pension doesn't cover it. Or, I mean, I hear a lot of conversations about how they need to go to work because every day not working is every day less salary and they've got dependents. So treatment and medication takes a back seat. They just can't afford to like, stay in hospital like, for two weeks. Life goes on, right? It's easy for you and I when we talk about access. I, I dare say that in Malaysia, every single Malaysian should theoretically have access to a government hospital with the facilities to treat cancer. Um, but the wait may be long. And radiotherapy machines are very limited in the government sector, and that's used to treat a variety of different cancers. And so the waiting list may be long. And how to get referred to a government hospital is also quite a tricky um, landscape. You go to your clinic, Kesehatan, you try and get an appointment, you try and get to the right clinic in the, in the hospital. All that takes time and during that process, you are suffering. And so most people end up paying out of their pocket um, to great detriment to their financial situation and that they, have, they go to the private sector. But generally in Malaysia, we are fortunate. I would say that if we empower our community more, even in areas like Sabah and Sarawak, you should be able to find uh, a facility. But having said that, the wait is very, very long. The private healthcare system is accessible for those who can afford to pay out of pocket or for those who have health insurance. But there is a cautionary tale here. Even for those who have medical insurance, there are many caveats in their policies. If you've not had your insurance renewed or looked at in the, next, in the last five years, 
those who have bought their premium packages or whatever from years back, you know, uh, they will find that they may not be amenable to the new immunotherapy medication for cancer because it's given as an outpatient. The old sort of packages say that you can receive treatment as inpatients. So naturally, your insurance don't cover that. So please, I think one thing is for those who are insured to relook at um, their insurance policies. This, this is really important. And even after renewal of insurance, there are these fine details that you cannot use it for the next two years. These are things that we have to be careful of. And, um, and we, we need to also ensure that um, preventive care, um, preventive screening, evidence-based screening, patients are reimbursed properly, patients are remunerated for getting their screening done. So we cannot, for example, if I get my cervical screening done and I get it treated, an insurance company mustn't come back and say, well, all your reproductive, your gynae, you can't have gynae cover because you've got a history of pre-cancer. That really, really is a bummer. And I think we should move away from that. And often I hear that from patients. Some insurance providers have also complicated the picture by lumping HPV infections together with other sexually transmitted diseases. In the um, screening phase, um, we now have the scientific evidence very strongly to show that HPV testing, uh, PCR for HPV, is a better screening modality than pap smears. But many women now, if they go for the HPV testing, their insurance company will then say, sorry, this is a sexually transmitted disease and therefore we can't cover this. We can't cover any future care. And we in Malaysia will have to tackle this because HPV is a common infection, very common infection, but it is not a conventional or what we know as a sexually transmitted disease. It doesn't imply any form of uh, irresponsible behaviour and we must move away from that. Very important. It took me a while to grasp what Professor Wu was saying. I'm confused. Does that mean that if the screening test you used was HPV, then the insurance provider could deny coverage based on the premise that it's a sexually transmitted disease? But if the screening test was a pap? They don't. So, yeah, that's, let's work on this together, right? So, in fact, what we've, what now, I've heard this from my colleagues. So, they've done a pap smear for a patient. It's abnormal. But they know, the, the policy, the companies know that pap, abnormal pap smears are due to HPV. So, they are getting the doctors and can you go perform an HPV test? The doctor then performs an HPV test. And then the insurance company says, that, sorry, this is a sexually transmitted disease. We won't reimburse you. So my, my colleagues who, who do private work will keep telling me, Yinling, yes, we know what's best. We know what should be done. But those insurance needs to change. So that's why I say that we, we need an all-society approach. As healthcare professionals, we're not going to you know, move the needle. We need to work together to move the needle. Because cervix cancer is causally related to HPV. Whether you test it, you don't test it, it's there. We know, we've known this for years and now it's been classified as a required um, 
sort of uh, agent to, to get cervical cancer. And because of that, we now have effective vaccines. We have effective screening methods. But yet, we're not getting the uh, compensation for doing the right thing. This really frustrates uh, many, many individuals. So we need to look at that and let that be 2024's achievement for Malaysia that we'll, we'll do this the right way. And as for Selena, well, she got her all clear. The news that her cancer was in remission in 2023. So how does she deal with what comes next? I'll be very honest with you. There are days when every little just feeling abnormally or unusually tired will send me into a tailspin of like kind of depressed, like oh it's this are very familiar feelings. Or quite recently, like um December, again I saw this bleeding thing every little thing just looms over your head so I'm not going to deny the fact that that fear at the back of my head is very real it's there I'm not going to pretend even though I am a true blue sanguine but that fear is so real every little thing I guess you will never, ever brush off any spotting or anything irregular with your body anymore, right? Never. I will do everything that I can possibly do to get better. Um, I consider myself a very spiritual person, okay? When I was undergoing all this treatment, there was a lot of pain, a lot of pain. I sought help from all sorts of therapists, spiritual, anything that I could possibly do to fortify my mental state because I know that's very possible. And I'm going to admit something that when I got well, sometimes I go into a spiritual relapse. You know, all those things that I was like clinging on to when I was fighting for my life, there were certain practices that was very important to me. But when I was well, then of course I got back onto the bandwagon of working, socialising, this, that. And I went into a spiritual or a, or a, just a kind of like... Those things take a back seat. A little bit, yeah. So um, my resolution this year is to come back to introspect and put it all together again so that, you know, I... I still keep some of those practices very much inside me. Some introspection within our healthcare system is also necessary when it comes to understanding the loopholes and weaknesses in our national response to cervical cancer. Professor Wu brings up another challenge related to the treatment of cervical cancer, and that is, are patients being treated by the right healthcare provider? In terms of treatment of cancer and who does the treatment, we in Malaysia are not so uh, regulated yet in that a, a doctor trained in cancer should be looking after patients. Maybe because we don't have enough oncologists or specialized doctors to see patients. 
So really, it up, it's up to the individual doctor. If someone turns up to you and they say, hey, I've got cancer, it's up to you whether you refer them to a colleague who deals with it very often or you try and take them on yourselves. And at present, um, the hospitals or insurance, nothing enforces uh, the policy of uh, oncologist or a trained surgeon or subspecialist to handle the case. So naturally, you won't have the most up-to-date and the best possible treatment. So if you don't deal with that type of surgery very often, that surgery might take longer. You may not need that um, surgery at all. Um, so it really depends what that individual's experience is. I, I think we need to look at um, the whole infrastructure and how healthcare is done in Malaysia, not just for cervix cancer, we need to have um, systems available that would hold healthcare professionals accountable. There need to be systems that enable primary care doctors and tertiary doctors have direct communication um, so that when a patient is seen in a primary sector, even the primary sector doctor can say, okay, you need to go to this person to get this done. So within hospitals, um, you have subspecialized clinic where where patients are seen uh, by the right specialist. The World Health Organization has issued a global clarion call for action to eliminate cervical cancer as a public health concern by 2030. To achieve this, Malaysia has to fulfil the 90-70-90 targets. For 90% of girls to be fully vaccinated with the HPV vaccine by the age of 15, for 70% of women to be screened with a HPV test by the age of 35 and again by the age of 45, and for 90% of women with pre-cancer to be treated and 90% of women with invasive cancer to be managed. Cervical cancer is one of the most treatable preventable and now eliminatable cancers among women. In Malaysia, it's still the third most common female cancer, which is totally unnecessary. In Malaysia, we have good screening methods, we have treatment facilities, while some may be difficult to get to. But the point is this, women who are well should get themselves screened and get treatment early because it is totally curable. Women with advanced cancers do not lose sort of sight of hope because it is a cancer that has better prognosis and it can be treated. Can we do it in just six years? If there is any pessimism or cynicism on our parts, one might do well to remember the doggedness and resilience of Selena and thousands of other women like her, survivors. The most important state is your mental state. It's so cliche, but it's very true. You can't afford to harbour any defeatist mentality. You cannot. It may be very painful, it may be very difficult, but you just need to find that ray of hope. Always believe that at the end of a rainy day, there's a rainbow. And things always have a way of working itself out. 
This has been NCD Chronicles, a series featuring the experiences and challenges of people with non-communicable diseases. If you missed any part of the show or previous episodes, you can listen to it on bfm.my or on our BFM app. You've been listening to Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.